I wound up working with a guy named Steve Papa, who had just founded a company at the time named OptiGrab, which if you don't know what OptiGrab is, it's the device that Steve Martin invents in the movie The Jerk. So when we took professional money from Bessemer, they made us rebrand the company as Indeca Technologies. And it was one of the first guided uh, search tools. And it had dynamic taxonomies. And it was really the first time I, I got to work with Carnegie Mellon Mathematic PhDs. I got to learn what it was like to be in the startup culture. I learned that when, you know, people, when a coder puts on the headphones, they don't want to talk to the biz dev guy. They want to be left alone. Oh, is that what that means? Uh, yeah, that's what it means. Oh, it means you. they don't, when they're standing at the foosball table holding up two beer pints, that means they want to talk to you. you know, <laughs> like, figure it out. Our guest for this episode of Austinpreneur is Brad Harrison, general partner at dual-use venture firm Scout Ventures out of Austin, Texas. Brad is a graduate of West Point and MIT. He served the United States as an airborne army ranger specializing in air assault. Today, he invests in top founders, exiting the military, intelligence community, and top research labs around the country. But don't let his background intimidate you. He's one of our friendliest and most philosophical guests we've hosted on the show to date. Keep listening to this episode of Austinpreneur to get a peek inside the mind of this investor funding the future of dual-use defense technology. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Kevin Kane, one of the speakers yesterday. Okay, yeah. Did you see yep. Kevin talk? I didn't see him talk. I know of him. You know yeah. who he is? Yeah. Okay, I've never met that guy. I I got the chills, I would say, a couple of times talking to him when he was talking about, you know, the potential of quantum physics. Sure, yeah. And this idea that, you know, you could theoretically have a camera in the form of a mathematical model that could basically predict the future, but only like one to five seconds, right? right? Because then you would just string, mathematically you could just string those things together. And then if you right. could see the future, you could avoid things like death. Right. And if you could avoid things like death, then we could be the last generation that dies. And if you've watched any of these you know, sci-fi shows where the next evolution of humanity gets multiple bodies and you upload your consciousness and you've done any sort of spiritual ayahuasca mushrooms, kind of like next generation energy moving. It's kind of an interesting yeah. philosophical concept. Yeah. Do we want to not die? I don't know that you want to live in this current incarnation forever. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's this... Peter Atia, who's a friend of mine, uh, moved to Austin, really, really amazing human being. Uh, he talks about really defining what is longevity. It's not living as long as you can, right? It's living 
with a quality of life and mobility and all of those things. And so when you ask that question, Nick, like, do we want to live forever? I guess the question is, well, what does that mean? Like, do you want the memory of Nick Spiller, the concept, right. the consciousness, right. your favorite playlist? Like, right. what are the things you want right. to be your legacy, right? And I think a lot of that goes into, you know, fundamentally at Scout, you know, my kids were two and four and I was looking at all of this dual-use defense tech, and I was seeing stuff through the veteran network, and, you know, we were seeing everything from weapons to super cool AI quantum, and we just kind of made the decision we wanted to make the world a better, safer place. So we weren't going to do kinetic weapons. We weren't doing any of that stuff. Like, we were going to leverage our background in the military, in our network, with people like Josh and Capital Factory to really amplify this idea of changing the world by investing in entrepreneurs that were focused on making the world better. So, you know, if that's a company out of New Mexico called Ubiquity that makes quantum dots that you can put into, you know, greenhouses and then immediately increases the yield of food, like how does that not make the world a better, safer place, right? They took a product that used to only be made out of toxic heavy metals. They've created it out of, you know, organic compounds. It's working, it's stable, it's having, you know, it's having the impact. I think that is what feeds your positive energy and that positive energy is what attracts other positive energy. And then all of a sudden, like last night, we had no pre-made plan. I didn't plan a dinner. I didn't plan anything, right? Mm -hmm. I agreed to support the Nissan SOCOM event because I'm trying to support that organization because I think it's doing good around innovation and bringing people together. And when I was there, I invited a whole bunch of people to go see live music at Seaboys. And I had an entrepreneur I haven't seen in eight years who then told me to invite Kevin Kane, who then came, and we wound up having a super deep, interesting conversation over four hours. And now I'm gonna see him again, and he's gonna meet with my team because he's doing really interesting stuff. You know, that's the way you wanna organically build companies, in right. my mind. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, circling back on the death thing, from a society perspective, though, do we want people to stop dying? No. And what, how, right. And like, how, what would that do to everything, you know, around us? I mean, you probably want The Rock to live another 20 I, years yeah, longer than he that. would normally what live. What if it was just, a voting system? Like, yeah. oh, this person wants to extend their life. Let's vote. Everyone that well, knows them. I, you know, I think today, I, I think today the problem is, you know, we probably, we have the wrong system of success right mm. we we use money everybody in this society uses money and now we use maybe followers is followers a metric for like a generation below us and it's not just followers it's then like how many people liked my post or what right so attention yeah it's 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 a weird system whereas i value the explorer the innovator the you know, the mad scientist that wants to stay in that lab for 72 hours until he falls asleep, drinks a Red Bull, and 
makes a mistake on an equation and it works. You know, that's who we want to back. And I think that, you know, being an entrepreneur, whether you are launching a fund like I did or you are an entrepreneur starting a company, is a very, very lonely, isolating endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. You bear all the stress. You bear all the responsibility. And whether you're successful or not, you're going to have gone through seven valleys of death. Right. It's inevitable. You know, your client doesn't pay. Your investor takes too long. You, you know, and we've been guilty of that at Scout. Right. When we were an early fund, you know, we would meet an entrepreneur and we'd back them because we just got it. Like we got that. You know, there's a group out of New York, uh, Brian Litvick and uh, Jeremy, who have a company called League Apps. It was originally called Sports Fight. And Brian tells this story. He, he published it on LinkedIn and we pu- republished it. But he tells this story of like, I went in, I met him. We were their first outside investor. We immediately got it. And we wired him money before we even had paperwork. Hmm. Right? Like that's what we did. Because what I remember as an entrepreneur is every time I really, really needed money and I was close, how frustrating that was or like, if that guy would just wire that 100 grand, I could wire this investment. But, you know, there's so many things that go into it. And for me, capital, I've been very, very fortunate that I've been able to raise capital, but it's also been a total grind. Sure. And, you know, I haven't had an easy path. Right. Because I believe, first, that, we as individuals have to evolve to get better and smarter and, you know, whether that, you know, you're super religious or you go get a PhD or you decide you're going to learn to play guitar, whatever those things are that you add, I think all of those add different perspectives that make us make better decisions, hopefully, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. For me, you know, meditation, sauna cold plunge i know everybody's making fun of it if my you know who's making if, fun of the sauna cold plunge i, I think my friend shy people. goldman uh on twitter you know made a list of like the five things that people will tell you without asking <laughs> uh you know i meditate i cold plunge i don't drink i do crossfit and there was one other one i don't remember right now and i i was like well, yeah, that describes me, except for the <laughs> CrossFit. And, like, you know, when I find something that works, I want to share it because it's right. really, really, Probably really reason, hard. The reason people talk about it. Right? It's really, really hard. And, oh, yeah. you know, Meditation I just. Meditation is one of the hardest things I've ever tried to do. Well, but what I've been doing is I've been just trying to slap that into the sauna cold plunge. So instead right. of making it so hard, if you just put yourself in a sauna and. For 10 or 20 minutes a day, yeah. close your eyes, and all right. of a sudden, you can meditate. Right, right. Assisted meditation. Well, it's, it's forced meditation by forced sitting it. in the right. sauna. Right. And then, you know, two days a week, I would say I want socialization. So I talk to young entrepreneurs, yeah. you know, or... Right. I didn't try to do that. I always take a magazine in the sauna. No, don't take a don't magazine. Don't take a magazine. No, no, meditate. Meditate. I'll That's do that. That's what I would do. I, that, I'm committing to that. Um, And then I think, you know, leadership and building organizations are really hard. You know, I always commend Josh for kind of what he built here because when I first got here, 
you know, I think Josh was just getting started and it was like, you know, nobody really knew what it was going to be. And then, you know, now when I think of Capital Factory, right, and I think of Josh and his dog, because now his dog's always with him. Stormy. Stormy. No, but I really, really commend Josh because really it's about community. And now that community is extended into a community that I and Craig and Kevin and Travis and all of these people can actually impact at scale. Because it's not just a community we've been part of for the last five or six years. It's a community we've been part of the last 35 years. So the relationships are a lot broader and deeper. And, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of uh, J.R. Gibbons and OSC. Uh, you know, J.R. has been bouncing around the ecosystem, really this unbelievable sponge. What I really appreciate is every time we got a chance, we had coffee, and I shared my problems, and he shared his problems, and we kept iterating over and over again. And I would hope that that went into where we are now with OSC and, you know, the SBA, uh, the Office of Strategic Capital. Capital. Got it. And that was announced during South By, I remember. Correct. And, you know, the big big change there is that the SBA changed the type of debenture that they have. So up until now, if you wanted to borrow money from the SBA – you would have to become a qualified manager. So you'd go through a licensing process. It costs between three hundred and fifty dollars and $500,000. So it is cost prohibitive mostly to early small-time funds. But if you do get licensed, you can then go get a debt vehicle that is either levered or unlevered. If it is levered, depending on which vehicle it is, you can have 1.25 leverage or two times leverage if it's the fund of fund structure. On the 1.25 leverage, it means that, you know, if you raise $100 million in private funding and you become approved through OSC and approved through the SBA and a licensed manager, you can borrow up to $125 million, which means you could probably borrow about 75 to 80 million of cash to deploy that delta that 75 million to 125 would be accrued interest so the way the sba works is you borrow the money and you have to pay the interest semi-annually well for venture capital that doesn't work because of our cash flows so most of the 300 plus sba managers are actually mezzanine debt, private equity, because they have companies that have a balance sheet that can support Mm -hmm. distributions that would pay the interest payments, whereas venture doesn't. So they came up with this idea called the Critical Technology Initiative. The Critical Technology Initiative was approved by Congress, and then they created this new vehicle called the Accrual Debenture, which says you can borrow the money, but you don't have to pay it back until either year 10, so you accrue your interest payments, and then in year 10, you can either pay off the entire loan or you can pay the loan um, in accordance with your distributions that you pay to your limited partners. So it's a really, really amazing ability to basically borrow money. Got it. And so 
you can't pay it outright. Otherwise, the repayments are proportional to what you're distributing to your LPs. Yeah. And I don't know the exact formula. That's all right. getting worked out. But right. yeah. So they've basically made it so that you can make it work for private equity. Right. VC. Right. right. It's still a debt investment or debt debt deal. Correct. But the, you know, adjust the returns to, to align with the venture capital business. Correct. Got it. Got it. Well, fascinating. Excited to have you here and, you know, teaching us about this. And, you know, we're myself included, but also a lot of people listen to the podcast. This is a relatively new space for us. And we've been in it for you know, five or six years. And um, it's brought a whole new meaning to what we do here at Capital Factory. And, and But we'd love to, you know, look back at your remarkable career. And, you know, you started in the Army as a Airborne Ranger and gone through into the tech world at, at big tech companies and, and now here, you know, managing partner of scout vc you want to just you know start back at the beginning and i think you're, you're yeah at a military academy in west yeah. point i mean I, I guess i would add one caveat before that which is i was born in 1972 so i got that generation of parents that let us kind of you know run wild but we were also the generation that had the first atari the first Commodore 64, the first generation Apple. And I was in an upper middle class family. Both my parents worked and my dad was a technophile. So we always had cool stereo equipment and then we got the first gen of those computers. So for me, watching the evolution of technology was how I grew up, right? It just was, yeah. you know, we were, you know, we were going to Radio Shack. You know, when something broke, my grandfather was like, let's go to Radio Shack. And we took <laughs> the whole, <laughs> we would take electronics apart. We would learn how they worked. We would learn about transistors and resistors and all of these different things. And that, to me, that perspective is really, really important to understand where we are now, where the rate of innovation is so much faster. Right. And so I, I, uh, I sent myself to West Point because I knew I probably needed some discipline. Uh, if you ask my wife, I probably still do need some <laughs> discipline. But, um, you know, I think I uh, was a distinguished undergrad, studied theoretical economics, got out, was an airborne ranger, was in ranger class 395, uh, which if you're not familiar is one of the last four phase ranger classes, but also four of my classmates died in the swamp of hypothermia. Two of them were my classmates from West Point that I knew freshman year. So my army career got really serious through a training accident when I realized like, oh, like this is the real, this is the real deal. And then uh, I thought I was going to go to a ranger battalion. I got sent on a real-world mission to Wake Island and ran a detention camp. It was surreal. It was a great experience. But I missed my slot, and when I came back, I decided I didn't want to spend a lot of staff time. So I spent two years as uh, the originally the deputy G5 and then the G5 if you're not familiar with the G5, the G5 is the person that works for the general who's in charge of civil military affairs and psyops falls under us and some other stuff. So I got to run a simulation for an entire division where we simulated a cross-border Sunni-Shiite conflict 
and I was the head role player. I had 500 soldiers that all, we wrote dossiers. So it was like writing a movie. Um, wow. My boss, Ed Oliveira, was actually the one that kind of came up with it, and we wrote these, and it was amazing, dude. It was this... But in that experience, I played the role of the mayor of Terrytown, and a guy named Joe Peters, who I served with, from that point forward, every time he saw me, would walk in the room and go, the mayor's here, the mayor's <laughs> here. So I kind of picked up that nickname in the Army in like 97, 98, and got out in 99, thought I was going to be a tech investment banker, wound up instead going to grad school at MIT Sloan, hmm. best decision I made. Got to Sloan in the middle of the first dot-com bubble, was really trying to figure out where I wanted to spend my time. You know, we were so overwhelmed at MIT because every there was so much money flowing that you had all these companies showing up and people dropping out of school. Um, and I wound up working with a guy named Steve Papa, who had just founded a company at the time named OptiGrab, which if you don't know what OptiGrab is, it's the device that Steve Martin invents in the movie The Jerk. So when we <laughs> took professional money from Bessemer, they made us rebrand the company as Indeca Technologies. And it was one of the first guided uh, search tools. And it had dynamic taxonomies. And it was really the first time I... I got to work with Carnegie Mellon Mathematic PhDs. I got to learn what it was like to be in the startup culture. I learned that when, you know, people, when a coder puts on the headphones, they don't want to talk to the biz dev guy. They want to be left alone. Oh, is that what that means? Uh, yeah, that's what it means. Oh, it means you. they don't, when they're standing at the foosball table holding up two beer pints, that means they want to talk to you. <laughs> you know, like, figure it out. Uh. Um, and Steve wound up, you know, just giving me the opportunity to be on the uh, uh, fly on the wall. You know, we used instant messenger for everything. We used chat for everything. And so Steve, uh, Steve found out that my call sign in the army was war pig six. So he created a, uh, a chat handle for me called the war pig six. <laughs> so thanks to Steve Papa, I got to like keep that military thing while I was integrating with yep. techies and yep. people. Um, and then uh, kind of fast forward, the market imploded. I thought I was going to run a fund. Capital was super hard to come by, so that was not an option. Wound up going to AOL, working for a great guy named Ed Fish. Wrote a couple of patents. Um, Ed and I wrote three together. And then uh, worked for Ted Leonsis in the C-suite, which was an unbelievable, just, Ted is just such an amazing human um, and was always really gracious with his time and compliments. And so uh, from there, I moved to New York. My wife and I met on a blind date. I was in D.C. She was in New York. I'm a New Yorker. So moved back to New York, uh, transferred to AOL, and then went to a startup called When You. Grew that to about $100 million in revenue. Uh, didn't have an exit that I thought we were going to have. Um, kind of reflected on the fact that, like, I was overworking for other people. And so I started by consulting, and uh, that was in 2006. Mm -hmm. Advised a couple of early-stage companies. Uh, one of them was a company named uh, Pumatic, which a guy named Amar Goyle started. He started Comely Media and Pumatic, took them public. It was amazing. Um and so really just kind of spent a lot of time being in startups, 
trying to add value by leveraging relationships in, in what I would call a strategic partnership is DevRel, mm-hmm. right? Really working with people thinking about big, like how can we solve a bigger problem, right. you know? Um, and from that, you know, had a conversation with a gentleman named Todd Daggeris, who is the founder of Spark Capital. I was Todd's teaching assistant at MIT, and Todd said to me, actually, you don't need a fund to start being an investor. You just need to go raise some money and start writing checks. And so December of 09, I took his advice. We wrote two $50,000 checks that month. I borrowed the money uh, from another. I borrowed 50 from my dad and 50 from a guy named Clay DiGiacinto, who's in a successful entrepreneur in the finance sector. And Clay and I have known each other for 30 years. Um, and Scout was born. We made nine deals like that. And then we got Dick Parsons, former chairman of AOL Time Warner, to say, put it in a fund. We'll give you money. Did a proof of concept fund. Uh, raised from 2011 to 2012, $4.5 million. Had those nine successful companies that we decided we were going to follow on to. Created Fund 1A, about $2 million. And then 15 months later, sold a company. We were first money in for $149 million cash. Everybody in 1A got 130% of their money back. Everybody in Fund 1 got half their money back. Super early in the life cycle of the fund, everybody was like, oh, what's going on here? So I immediately asked for more money, and they all doubled their commitment. And Fund 2 was born, which was about almost $11 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that, we incubated a company called Unite Us, which is founded by a guy named Dan Brillman and Taylor Justice. Uh, Dan is an Air Force pilot who went to Yale undergrad and Columbia Business School. Taylor is a West Point Army football player who also went to Columbia. Um, and they now have an amazing company that's just crushing it, changing people's lives, focused on the social determinants of health. And in that fund, I also invested with an entrepreneur named Blake Hall, who founded a company called the ID.me. And ID.me now has the IRS, Social Security, Treasury, all as customers. Um, and what Blake has built is really... If you think about Visa for the credit card, this idea that you get licensed once by your credit card company, and then Visa guarantees that you go anywhere in the world and you can buy food or buy a good and you walk out and they let you do it because you hand them a card with a Visa thing on it and a number. Well, imagine if you had the same level of portability with all of your identifications without carrying anything with you. What if you could then get different prices or things based on you're a teacher, you're a firefighter, you're a veteran, you're, you know, AARP, you're over 65, whatever it is, they can do that at scale, and they're doing it at scale. So we have 150 commercial customers, Home Depot, Dell, you know, whatever it is, all these customers. So, like, I bought my son an Xbox for his birthday. Happy birthday, Elvis. He's mm-hmm. 15 now. He's only 6'1", 6'2", with the afro, maybe. He's got a huge head of hair. He's got a perm. A uh, little bit of a, you know, Fletch reference there, you know, if anybody remembers. I'm starting to date myself. Uh, you dated yourself at the very beginning. I did date myself. I, I literally, I <laughs> you, dated You went myself. out of the way to date yourself, yeah, actually. Well, because I think dating myself in this context of the evolution of technology right, is very, sure. very relevant. Yep. And, you know, I'm like, it's weird because I'm right on the cusp of missing our last 
missions to the moon, but then all the way through the development of the shuttle program and all, and all of these strategies and successes. But anyway, you know, Fun 2 was born. When Fun 2 was born, I realized, like, hey, if I want to do this for a living, I got to do a bunch of things, you know, to make it institutional. So, you know, put all the things in place. Had a great guy named Brendan Siren who, like, helped me build the firm from the ground up. I'm ex-military, so we built a standard operating procedure. So we're on version 31, and... You know, if you mess something up at my firm, you probably didn't read how to do it right. And, you know, we edit that all the time because we're always trying to get better. And like I said, things evolve. And so now we're on fund four. You know, we've uh, done a first close. We've made six investments. Um, Our investors include the State Investment Council of New Mexico, um, so a shout out to Chris Cassidy, who runs a program over there, and Richard Prugmeyer from Mercer, who have been super supportive of our last two funds. We've made some great investments in New Mexico. Um, JP Morgan, Jamie Kramer, and the team over at uh, Project Spark. So we, we really appreciate their support. And uh, USAA, uh, Nathan uh, and his team, formerly NEF, have been super supportive, and that's given us some institutional support, which is now hopefully going to propel us to the next level. And, um, you know, my goal is over the next five years to make Scout, you know, independently financially stable. And to me, that's making sure that I've got enough LPs that when I say I'm doing the next fund, they raise their hand and they say they're in without, you know, a lot of argument. Right. That's and right. so, as you know, we sold Tomahawk Robotics yesterday, and so mm-hmm. our goal is to send these Fund Three investors back money over the next twelve months. But before we close Fund Four, ask them all to re up. So that's the plan. Right. That's a good time to ask for more money is when you're getting getting giving money back. So, a few questions came up through there, and um, you kind of touched on it a second ago with the standard operating procedure, but. What skills did you take with you from the military into the, the tech VC world? Oh. My favorite one that I like to talk about is uh, I call combat patience. Okay. This idea that you can set all the conditions, you can put all the people in place, you can do everything you should do on the client meeting, you can do all of that, and sometimes nothing happens. It just takes more time. You just got to grind it out. And I think it is hard for a team to not have a knee-jerk reaction. You know, you go in, you're an aerospace company, you meet with Boeing, they say one thing, you change your pitch when you go into Airbus. Airbus says the exact opposite, and you should have given your first pitch. Whiplash. And you walk out, and you're like, what? Like, why did I do that? I see founders um, do it on fundraising, too. They go talk to three or four investors. I've, listen, I've done it, right? Yeah. I originally thought I could only raise money if I had partners at the GP, and I could only do this, and I had investing companies like that. You know, ultimately, you have to be smart. You have to have a good team. For us, the most important thing is integrity. I like to say most of the time, if somebody doesn't like me, 
it's probably because I found something that I called out and people don't like hearing the truth. And it can be a small thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. And I don't always have to make a big deal about it. But I think integrity is really, really important, especially given how hard building a company is already, right? right? You're already fighting all the odds. And if you have somebody that does something, and the integrity could be, hey, you know, an angel tells you he's going to write a $100,000 check next Friday. And then he doesn't write the check next Friday. And now that creates a cash crunch because your customer was, you know, delayed. So you didn't get that $50,000 deposit, right? Like it becomes this very cascading effect. And so I think, you know, integrity is a really critical part of that yeah. formula for us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Then how about from a you know, leading team's perspective, building entrepreneurs, people around you, what, what kind of so, you know, things so you let, learn? Let, let yeah. me bifurcate that into okay. my, uh, we'll do the entrepreneur second. Let me talk about my own team first. So sure. okay. I spend a lot of time trying to put myself in environments where I am gaining professional development to make me a better leader and manager. I already think I'm pretty good, but there's definitely things that I do uh, where sometimes I say fuck it and I know I'm not necessarily leading the right way, but I do. Um, but I think this idea of working with a coach, aligning your values and priorities, doing all of that, and then getting your team to understand that the core values and priorities are aligned with the goals and objectives of the things that you're asking them to do so that they understand why they're doing what they're doing as part of a bigger vision, hmm. right? I don't ever think about anything in the short term anymore, right? It doesn't, that doesn't help me at all, right? Like when I think about hiring someone, I think about how, what, what's their role going to be over the next five years if they work out, right? And, you know, I'd say we've had a lot of turnover for no other reason that you know, we're evolving, where we're investing is evolving, you know, where our office was headquartered is evolving, you know, we've been in New York, Boston, DC, you know, we've had a pretty good, because we've been trying to figure out, like, do we need an office in DC to do dual use GovTech? Like, do you need that? You probably don't. We now have a venture partner there, and that kind of, and Ryan McCarthy's also there, so Jeff Green and Ryan are there. So we didn't actually need the office, right? But we didn't know what we were going to be. So I think constantly evolving and understanding kind of what your needs are is, is really important. On the entrepreneur side, what I'm trying to do at Scout is get everybody within the firm to, you know, develop a culture where we all know that there's four things we're going to help our portfolio companies with. And we call them the four R's. Raising capital driving revenue, recruiting key people, and retaining those people. Those things. Any particular order there? Uh, yeah, I would go in the order of the things that, you know, run out of uh, money first. So normally it's on the capital side first. So not only our own check, but who do we bring to the table as co-investors? How do we properly capitalize that first tranche of capital? As our fund gets bigger, we'll commit 
bigger chunks of money we'll put more in reserve but you know capital raising capital number one Mm -hmm. revenue is always number two we think about non-dilutive revenue which is revenue but not gap revenue we put that in the bucket so everything i'm doing today related to meeting with afworks and army sbir and all of that office of strategic capital all of that is related to making sure we can access more capital and revenue for the portfolio CEOs so that they don't have to stress about money. And then, you know, key people, where do they struggle? COOs, your first VP of sales, your first head of marketing, product manager, you know, I mean, you just struggle. So, you know, I've met three product managers this week, one at a Phoenix Beck concert, one at an event doing a demo, and one out at another event. And I asked all three of them for their cards because we struggle to find good product managers, right? Because that person needs to have a, a vision. They need to understand the capabilities of what they're building, right? It's very, very, very nuanced. Sure. Um, and then, you know, I would say lastly, you know, in terms of retaining talent, you know, spending time at the board, making sure you have the proper retention numbers, making sure if you don't have the proper retention numbers, you figure out why. Are we not paying enough? Do we not offer the right benefits? What, you know, what are the things, what, what are the things that, you know, we need to do to really get there? Yeah, got it, got it. What type of investments are you making at Scout Ventures? What are the companies so, you're getting behind? So when we think about kind of, you know, investing, our investing is kind of the culmination in the last 13 years of really doing after action reviews every year and saying, Hey, what populations of entrepreneurs do we have a competitive advantage in sourcing? Which ones listen to us better? Where do we have the best relationships? And that's not only where we sourcing those entrepreneurs. It's also what's the composition of the founding team. One founder, two founders, three, like what works with us, what works with me, what, what, what works. For us, that's mostly founders that are veterans of the military, the intelligence community, national labs, and academic research institutions with DOD connectivity. So Carnegie Mellon, Texas A&M, John Hopkins, Georgia Tech Robotics. Yep. There's a pretty good list. Um, and the reason we've kind of narrowed the focus there is because we are already seeing so much deal flow. We want to start building deeper relationships where the Scout brand comes with a relationship and a reputation, hopefully, that you know we attract better entrepreneurs. When we invest in a company, hopefully that helps the company recruit better talent. You know, it's all about trying to get the best people in the room. And then from a sector focus, Broadly defined, it's dual-use frontier tech. I'd say about 80% of our companies will get dual-use non-dilutive funding. About 20% will then go on to service somebody within the government. Um, And frontier tech, in our mind, is AI machine learning, autonomy robotics drones, cyber, quantum as a sector, which is quantum encryption, quantum compute, quantum materials, space as a sector and power and energy as a sector and 
You know, I would say that the hardest thing, which has been a lot of the conversations, Nick, that you've kind of been privy to the last 48 hours, is really as a smaller investor, right, as a million and a half to two and a half million dollar lead, what are the things that I can invest in because I just don't have enough capital and they're mm. too CapEx intensive, right. right? Like, what do I have to say no to even though I really, really love it because he's going to have to, he or she's going to have to raise a hundred million in year three of the company. It's almost the other side of the, People say, oh, this isn't big enough for venture. Some of the, there's other things. It's, oh, you need a longer time right. horizon. So, it's you so, know, so hy- hypersonics, yeah. hydrogen fuel, semiconductors right all of these things are you know i think huge capex and that's why working with the national defense innovation ecosystem right Right. osc asalt all of these different elements within the government is really about figuring out how to collaborate with dod to get capital to appear before we get to the valley of death. Now, that can be non-dilutive, that can be contract, that can be match. It doesn't really matter, but having a better understanding of how we can access that money so that you have a higher throughput rate of successful companies. Got it, got it, very helpful. The so you mentioned earlier on in that, the, the after action review, that's another technique from the army yes. you learned, correct? And and so that's a, tactically, if an entrepreneur wants to employ that, how, how, how would you just go about the quick well, operation? You, you know, I think the, the most important thing is for whatever your business is to have your metrics and KPIs. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important to get feedback on your metrics and KPIs because it would be really, really bad if you were looking at the wrong metrics and KPIs <laughs> and then you drove off a cliff, right? right. So um, we think about helping entrepreneurs think about what is important given the nature of their business, right? Is it a hitting a new technical breakthrough endpoint? Is it securing a logo from a big customer? Is it getting a, a check from another capital provider what are the things that that really matter right and then just you know constant read reflecting on that you know i think that most management teams are well served to have you know some sort of monday morning kickoff sync check-in because i just think you know we're traveling everybody's so remote i think that's a really important Mm check-in and then you know on a monthly basis, what are the things that you're looking at and giving yourself, uh, you know, a red, yellow, or green mark in terms of the status of that initiative? Yep. yep. And we do that by portfolio company, right? Mm. You know, so I think constantly looking at your own data and then using that data to refine. You know, in my first fund, we did direct to consumer. You know, we did all sorts of stuff mostly based on entrepreneurs that we just loved and wanted to back. But now, you know, a decade and a half later, there's all these companies that I won't do because I can't add value. Mm. Right? Like, I don't want to do a fashion company because I don't have a lot of relationships in fashion. So it's not somewhere where I'm going to add value. 
I've done three different fashion technologies, you know, a fitting room social and black book and nice a, hats, a, nice hats.com. Um, yeah. So I, I think, uh, I think you just got to continue to refine your art. Yeah. And the only way to refine your art is to look in the mirror and, you know, or, Ask somebody else what they right, think. Right. Not that their opinion necessarily matters, but maybe they see something you didn't see, and maybe that pulls a thread right. that understand is their your perspective. And, Correct. Yep. Yep. So, A A R to A R R. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. And you mentioned one of your portfolio companies was recently acquired. Can you elaborate on that transaction? Yeah, sure. So we recently announced that Tomahawk Robotics was acquired by Aero Environment, which is a publicly traded company. Uh, the founders, Brad Truesdale, who's a Navy SEAL, and Matt Summer, uh, they met when they were working together at Harris Robotics. Uh, back in 2018 at Scout, we wrote a white paper on autonomy drones and essentially spent 20 weeks doing a research project. Out of that, spent four weeks thinking about where we wanted to invest, decided that because we thought we could get software-like margins by investing in a controller software. We decided to go software. Wound up investing in Brad and Matt, led the round, led the seed round, joined the board, uh, ultimately brought Ryan McCarthy to join the board, mm -hmm. and then uh, sold the company. Uh, it, the transaction will close right at the five-year mark, and a bunch of our stock falls under qualified small business exemption. So it's yep. a, a great outcome all around. Well, congratulations. Thank you. On that deal. And Brad, thank you for joining us on the show today. Hey, Nick, I'm always here for you, brother. Awesome. All right. Thanks, dude. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible and special thanks to Aaron Handworker who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode.